And then 9-11 hit. And so we had a lot of discussion about like, oh my God, you know, is, is our work relevant? Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Crossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century and I guess in the time of the pandemic. Today, we have a special guest. We have Sonia Lubomirsky, who is a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of California, Riverside, where she is a director of the Positive Activities and Wellbeing Laboratory. And this is a topic, well-being and uh, positive activities, that we'll try to dissect uh, right now, especially in the context of the unfolding world crisis. But first of all, Sonia, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Thank you. I just I wanted to ask Sonia before we get into the sort of technical stuff. Um, how how's life right now? <laughs> <laughs> life is uh, you know better than expected. I think a lot of people are talking about how they are surprised at how well or how quickly they've been able to adjust mm. to mm. the quarantine. Um, I am going a little stir crazy. Personally, I my household has seven people in it, Whoa, and Jesus, you have we're all seven, kind of on seven, top of each other. Yeah. You have seven laptops as well. Uh, exactly, <laughs> uh, or iPads. Yeah. Uh, we're kind of on top of each other, and there's not really no place for privacy. So that's that's interesting. You know, I grew up in the Soviet Union, where you know there was no privacy, uh, and I feel like I'm like telling my husband, "Honey, this is just like being back in the Soviet Union." <laughs> Right. That's a nice way of looking at it. So, um, so, so it's interesting. You talk about some un, uh, unexpected positives. I was kind of noticing that the other day. It's really hot now uh, in Oregon and you walk out on the streets, you know, when you go and get your daily exercise and um, it's very calm and quiet and sunny. It sort of feels a little bit like, um, you know, you're in, a, in a, a beach resort or something. You know, it's that sort of serene tranquility uh, and the combination of the sunshine, which has been very helpful. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there certainly are a lot of positives. Um, and I'm I live in Santa Monica, in Los Angeles area. You know, there's like almost no traffic, and as you say, a lot, the neighbors suddenly have come out of the woodwork. You know, people yeah, right. around here drive, and suddenly everyone's walking. And um, right. and it, yeah, in sunny days, it's it's really beautiful. I mean, I have to keep remembering just how many people are suffering. Yeah, especially those in situations of financial precarity. And uh, just seeing students and having them having a hard time. Two of my kids are in college, and I'm kind of heartbroken at how their lives have been mm. disrupted. You know, you're, you're, it's like you're having that time of your life mm. as a college student, living in a dorm, surrounded by people mm. taking amazing classes, and mm. suddenly you're back home with your family. You know, staring into a computer screen. Yeah. So yeah, it's lots of lots of sort of good and bad at the same time. You know, I just wanted to say to Igor. You know, I remember we saw each other. We said goodbye. Uh, at the end of a conference we went to in New Orleans, yeah. um, it was a very last morning. You know, I was going to the airport. I, I think you right. too, maybe. And uh, and boy, doesn't that sound? Doesn't that seem like it was a hundred years ago? Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no, it does. It does. And I was just thinking about that the other day. Yes, it is very, very different world. Even though I have to say, during the time in. Uh, uh, this was uh, in your leads. Uh, during that time, I was already a little bit scared about what will what will happen in the next uh, month. I was anticipating some of this, but I couldn't envision the concrete manifestation of it yet. Uh, but it's yeah, really like... It just, it just, gonna, the fact yeah. that we're all together in this like mass of people at the conference yeah. and just who knows how many... I mean, hope, you know, if a couple of years, at least it's going to go before we're able to sort of um, gather again. That's right. 
I, I find already when I, I see groups of people like in a, an old film or something, I feel slightly uncomfortable because I've already sort of trained myself to be, you know, a little bit. Oh, really? Yeah, already. I, yeah. I, I see, see yeah. people oh, shaking I, hands I in, in films and I'm like, I can't believe yeah. they're shaking hands, you know. No, no, <laughs> no have, me I too. I mean, I, watching... Yeah, but me too, watching TV and movies, uh, I'm like, oh my God, all these people are sitting together. Yeah, now, I study, I, I've also been studying hedonic adaptation, right? Which is the extent to which, you know, people are able to kind of get become accustomed to changes in their lives. And I do think that we will be able to sort of get reaccustomed so. uh, fairly quickly That's to get back together. Well, um, we're gonna get we're gonna get into the details now, and I think Eagle was was keen to get some sort of definitions um, a little bit in place before we start talking about things more broadly. So, uh, Eagle, over to you. Right. So the first question that our listeners will probably be wondering about: What does being a professor of well-being laboratory mean? So, what is well-being? How do psychologists define this big term such as happiness or well-being? Great question. Yeah. So I define, uh, so first of all, well-being is kind of the overarching term, uh, kind of more of a jargony word and happiness is right. really what, we're, what we mean when we say well-being. Um, and I define happiness or well-being uh, the way that kind of the founder of the field, Ed Diener, defines it. And, and that is that it, it really has two components. So to be a truly happy person, um, you are going to be satisfied with your life. So life satisfaction, kind of this, this idea that your life is good that you're progressing towards your life goals. So that's one sort of component of happiness. Um, but that's not enough because you could be satisfied with your life but not experience many positive emotions necessarily. So so the other component has to do with how frequently you experience positive emotions, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's a sort of joy, enthusiasm, or tranquility, serenity, pride, affection, curiosity. Of course, negative emotions are also important and functional under certain circumstances. Um, so I'm not saying that happy people experience positive emotions all the time, but, but anyway, so those are kind of the two components, positive emotions and life satisfaction. I think I saw you talking the other day uh, saying that people often underrate the importance of the positive emotion aspect of it and think that's kind of trivial, but, but perhaps that's not the case. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a lot of debate about uh, what people call um, eudaimonic happiness as opposed to hedonic happiness. Right. So hedonic Happiness is basically, you know, you know, feeling good and experiencing positive emotions. And eudaimonic is really more about meaning and engagement uh, and connection. Um, but I've always argued that those two things almost always go together, right? It, it feels good mm. to to have a meaningful job, right? It, it, you know, it feels really wonderful to feel connected to other people, um, and so they mostly go together. Uh, but in rare cases, they don't. So it's sort of the Mother Teresa example right, where yeah. someone is, yeah, they're contributing to society, but actually depressed. But that is fairly rare, actually. Do we, do we know that Mother Teresa was uh, uh, stressed in that way? Or is that just a sort of a casual term? Yeah, yeah, apparently we do. There was a, a biography of her that came out maybe in the last five years that um, I guess there was some new new evidence that she was actually clinically depressed. Huh. That's... That's interesting, isn't it? Because she's often yeah. held up as a real sort of paragon of how one should live one's life. But it's interesting to know that it's not so straightforward. Exactly. Right. Well, I wanted to get into some pandemic-related questions. Igor, is this a good moment? Sure. Um, so, I, you know, when I was speaking to people saying that, you know, we're, um, we're having Sonia on, uh, they were, you know, everyone seems to intuitively get that we would expect 
you know, this to have an impact on our happiness, this this lockdown that we're living under at the moment. I, what I'd be interested in with, with your sort of um, understanding of the field, could you sort of break that down a little bit for us? So we kind of get that, yes, if you lock everyone up in their homes, they're going to be, you know, they're going to reduce have a reduced level of happiness. But could you just talk about the mechanics of what is it that we that um, we're prevented from doing now that is the sort of mechanism by which we're going to perhaps be unhappier? Sure. Well, I'm a happiness researcher, but I also in the last few years have been really interested in studying connection, right? So I, I do think that right, right. When connecting with other people is is really the key to happiness. Um, and so that's been a lot of the narrative around what's happening with quarantine and pandemic is, you know, are we able to still connect with people the way that we used to? And the, at first, you know, there's a lot of discussion about how, oh my God, you know, I can't can't see my family. I can't see my friends in person. Um, there is something special about face-to-face interactions that we can get, get into that. That's another research interest of mine is what's different about digital versus face-to-face interactions. Uh-huh. Very relevant today. Mm, yeah, um, sure. But I, what, we're, what we're seeing now, and, the, and I actually am doing some research on this, and there's other labs that are sort of looking at how happiness and connection have changed from pre to post-pandemic. And I don't want to reveal any kind of cutting-edge data just yet, but there are hints emerging that happiness has not taken as much of a hit overall as, as as you'd expect. And I do think there's lots of things going on to explain that. Um, in part, um, human beings, you know, we, we, have a, we have a need to belong, we have a need to connect, and then we sort of are, are we try to satisfy the need any way you, we can. And so we all know that lots of people are now, you know, having happy hours over Zoom or they're reaching <laughs> out to friends and family everywhere. Yeah. So, so they may actually be connecting in some ways uh, better. And then there's, of course, lots of examples of people being now kind of cooped up in their homes, which sometimes sometimes is having uh, adverse effects. But for many, you know, long-distance relationships that are being revived and mm. people are kind of bonding. I know of at least one marriage that is really being kind of rekindled because people are, kind of, you know, mm. bonding over this and spending a lot of time talking. And so there's sort of, I guess, I guess bottom line is that they're both, sort of really adverse effects for connection, but at the same time, there's some really positive consequences for connection that are happening at the same time. There's one kind of aspect when it comes to happiness research. People, people, I think, have a bit of a sense of guilt of focusing on their own happiness. It has a sort of, um, perhaps incorrect, but it has a sort of uh, selfish aspect. It could be interpreted as, you know, well, you're just in this time of crisis focusing on your own happiness. But there was some of your research, I think, um, as a paper you wrote, which I think was with Ed Dine. I'm not. I'm not entirely mm-hmm. sure the benefits of frequent positive affect. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. And and that that was interesting because it suggested that actually there are certain outcomes from uh, increasing your level of happiness that might be really relevant to now. So, for example, I think you mentioned that um, it can boost your immune system. Uh, you can be, become more resilient to stress, and even uh, happy people tend to be more helpful and philanthropic. So, all these. These ideas are suggesting that, in fact, now happiness might not be a luxury. It might be something critical and key to focus on. I, if you could tell us a little bit more about that, that'd be really helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, this is a this is a discussion that started after nine eleven. So, um, positive psychology, which is sort of the field that I'm part of, I don't love the term, by the way, but that is what it, sure. it's called. Um, it started in 1999, um, and I was one of the sort of early sort of people involved in. in and, and starting that field. Um, and then 9-11 hit. And so we had a lot of discussion about like, oh my God, you know, is, is our work relevant, mm. you know, in this sort of time of like incredible crisis? Mm. Um, 
And and so there was a lot of angst about that. But then the, the conclusion basically that that I and people in my field came to, and actually is, is that actually it's it's even more relevant. The sort of flourishing and well-being and connection and meaning are even more relevant in times of crisis and adversity and trauma. And so the same kind of question is, is happening now. Um, as you referred to the paper with Adina and Laura mm. King that we published, that we're, we're basically, we showed that happiness is not just something that feels good. It's not just about pleasure, but it's also associated with success in life. So happy people are more um, uh, sort of more successful in, in terms of relationships, in terms of their careers, and in terms of their physical health. They're healthier. They have more likely to find a marriage partner. They're more creative and productive. Uh, they have more energy. Um, and so my, I often say that, you know, it's the happy people who are going to kind of get off the couch and actually may right. do something to solve a world problem yeah. or to help someone. Um, so, so absolutely, I think well-being is, is even more relevant today than, than it, ever, that it ever is. And on, on that specific, just because um, people obviously, you know, people's immune strength of their immune systems is something that everyone's talking about all of a sudden. Um, what, what do we know about the link there? Sure. Um, yeah. So again, m- much of the research is correlational, but mm. positive emotions are associated with strong immune systems and there's all, all kinds of measures, cytokines, you know, I'm not a immune immunologist, sure, um, sure. but I know some, I know some of the research and kind of relevant to this, we have a paper published in psychoneuroendocrinology where we show that people who are asked to do acts of kindness for others actually show shifts in their RNA gene expression profile that are associated with stronger immune function, uh, particularly, um, less inflammation or sort of down-regulation of pro-inflammatory genes. And we just replicated that, not published yet, where we found mm-hmm. kind of the same thing. So people who are asked to do acts of kindness for others, this is a random assignment, this is an experiment, mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. show shifts in um, RNA gene expression profiles. And, and here we actually found evidence of antiviral activity, which is really oh, relevant yeah. to the pandemic. So, so th- those experiments are kind of nice showing that when people are asked to help others, which also makes them happier, mm-hmm. Um, kind of so sh- shifts in um, yeah kind of stronger immune function that this is all still uh, it needs to be replicated even more still mm-hmm. kind of a little bit more suggestive than definitive but there's some really nice work uh, showing re- relationships between kind of positive activities but also between positive emotions and and immune systems right well, it's interesting because there's ob- obviously lots of opportunities to do good things for other people right now. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And we're trying to study this right now, actually, in a, in a COVID-related study and asking people kind of what are they doing, you know, uh, in terms of helping others, reaching out to neighbors and, and such. It seems like it would have interesting consequences for those people who cannot necessarily help others because they're stuck at home with their family. Right, except there's so many ways you can help, I think, that, uh, well, you can help your family. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, there's so many ways that obviously another, again, another interest of my lab is looking at sort of digital versus face-to-face kindness. And when we first started doing this, this was, you know, years before the pandemic, there, we just couldn't think of that many ways that people could help digitally. I mean, you, yeah, you can reach out and thank someone on Facebook or you could yeah. you know, contribute to like a crowdfunding, you know, campaign right. and, you know, send someone something. Um, but now I think people are getting more creative. And just as one example, I've been helping people with uh, Zoom, you know, especially at the beginning mm-hmm. when people were kind of still not really, um, yeah, very good at using it. And that's been, that's been, it's just so important, you know, so we can help each other with technology. Um, right. Yeah, lots of ways to help, I think, even when you're not face to face. That's this is really interesting. Seems like positive emotions can help and there are ways to potentially 
improve your positivity by helping other people. But what about uh, interventions uh, that are oriented towards uh, increasing happiness? So in some of your work, you talk about the effectiveness of different happiness interventions. Sonia, you and I, we, we originally come from a different cultural background where orientation towards happiness and what it means may take us of a different turn. And I think in your work, you also talk about uh, different factors, including fit, dosage, culture, social mm -hmm. support, motivation. So can you say a little bit more about that, about the role of these different factors for how effective different interventions may be for increasing your happiness? Uh, yeah, sure. I'd love to talk about that. Um, so I've been doing what I call happiness interventions for about 20 years. And, and right. these are basically, they're kind of like clinical trials where mm -hmm. instead of testing a new drug treatment, you might test a new kind of activity that or strategy that people can use to become happier. And so we've, we've, randomly assign people to express gratitude versus do something neutral or to do acts of kindness or to savor the good things in, the, in their lives. And generally, we find that, that those activities work in, in increasing happiness, although the effects are usually fairly small. One of my thoughts about that is that in, in the real world, you know, if you want to be happy, you kind of need to take ownership of that and mm -hmm. to, to really, um, yeah, really decide to do it yourself as opposed to have the experimenter you know, force you to do it. Right. So that's actually one of the factors that are really important, which is kind of what is your the motivation? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and also, I think a lot of these effects aggregate over time. So so just kind of like a, if you take a drug a few times, it's, it's going to stop working once you stop taking it. So, but yeah, fit is really, really important. I, have a, I wrote a book a long time ago called The How of Happiness, where that was kind of the theme of the book about if you want to be happy, mm. you have to choose the right strategy for you. Um, the, the right, the strategy that fits your personality or fits your goals or fits your culture. Um Igor, I know you're interested in culture, so so one example is gratitude. So we we found, for example, in South Korea that when you asked students in South Korea to write gratitude letters, they did not become happier like like American mm -hmm. students do, and they actually became a little bit less happy. Oh. Um, now, gratitude is a really really interesting um, emotion, very very rich experience, and we find that actually across cultures, it does not only does it make people feel happy, but also makes people feel indebted or sometimes embarrassed or ashamed um, or uncomfortable mm. or expressing gratitude sometimes is very uncomfortable or awkward. And so, right. yeah, so that's, you have to really be kind of sensitive to these issues of fit. One more thing I wanted to uh, mention, because I think it's really critical for anyone uh, listening who might be mental health or health professionals, is that gratitude could really backfire in people who are depressed, especially those who mm -hmm. are severely depressed or suicidal. You know, one of the one of the sort of factors that contributes to suicidality is a feeling that you are a burden on other people and you want to end your life because you don't want to be a burden anymore. Mm. And so if you kind of force or, you know, induce very depressed people to sort of think about how much other people have helped them, that you might actually make you feel even more of a burden. So we have to be really sensitive to, to these kinds of fit issues. And gratitude, I think I recall you saying was like particularly sensitive to, to, dosage so you can get carried away you know say your mental health is strong but you're asked to do too much uh, of the gratitude exercise it yeah. can sort of backfire a little bit there as well exactly we actually did a study um a counting blessing study to see sort of how many blessings should you count right. <laughs> sort of how many is too many how many <laughs> Very specific. and actually i yeah. believe we found i think it was like eight things was sort of just the right amount, the Goldilocks kind of amount. Uh, I think that's true for anything, you know, moderation is the mm. key, kind of that, Arist the, the, this idea of the Aristotelian mean. I think it's true for gratitude, it's true for kindness, it's true for pretty much anything that you don't want to overdo it. 
uh, you might feel like it's a burden or you might feel taking advantage of, or like say if you help others too much to, detri- to the detriment of your own self-care. But, and certainly with gratitude. I'm actually someone who's not really a big, in my personal life, I find gratitude to be kind of a little trite and hokey. I don't mm. know if that's my Russian side, um, but I'm not Probably. the only one. Left. <laughs> Probably, <laughs> Igor says. Um, I'm not the only one. So, but that's a fit issue. You know, for me, you know, I mean, I, but I, you know, but writing emails to some people in my life and, and telling them that I'm grateful for them, that I do enjoy doing that. That really makes me feel connected. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would never sort of sit around and count my blessings. But, but if other people tell me that that's like very powerful strategy for them. So you have to kind of find what works for you. So what can the current crisis, I just want to try to put it in the context of the pandemic, what can it tell us about happiness interventions and vice versa? Which of the happiness interventions do you think would be more amendable to help uh, sustain well-being in the current situation? Mm-hmm. What do you think? You know, I really think all, I, I, I really think all of them. I mean, it, it, again, I, I think mm-hmm. that times of sort of challenging, trying times, Actually, those are times when happiness interventions are even more uh, impactful, although maybe there's more a little bit of a floor effect there. There's more room to grow. But I right. think that all the interventions certainly that I've been studying are relevant to the pandemic. So helping others, you know, unless you're already overburdened, you know, sure. then then it's not going to work. Um, gratitude is is interesting. I mean, I, I, I always have mixed feelings about gratitude because I don't want to tell people like, oh, well, just be grateful for what you have, right? Yeah, and, it can it, sound it, passive, it, can't it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But it turns out that gratitude can also motivate people to improve themselves through through sort of that sense of kind of the need to repay or mm. sort of the sense of indebtedness. So indebtedness is actually not a bad thing. It, it might feel a little unpleasant, mm. but it motivates people to reciprocate and kind of pay it back and pay it forward. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, we just ran a study. Where we compared people pre and post the pandemic on various measures, and we found that some of the what what really changed is actually gratitude. So people were feeling more grateful, and mm. I mean, this is also found. Barb Fredrickson actually found this after nine eleven too. She found like the emotion that changed the most from pre to post September eleventh was gratitude. So people kind of realized like, oh my, you know, actually things could be a lot worse, mm. and you know, I have my family or I still have my job. I don't know if you guys were doing this, but my husband and I, the first week, I mean, that was so rough just being at home all yeah. day. And, and I right. just kept, we, I just kept sort of reminding our, us, you know, we both have our jobs. Yes. Like now we have to work at home all day, every day, side by side. That is not easy, but we both have our jobs. So people are mm. experiencing more gratitude. And, and I, I do, I do think that's a, that's an important thing during trying times. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was just thinking about that today with a friend uh, where we have different reference points to uh, making this type of comparisons or references to our experiences. Like every single person has different experiences. Uh, For instance, somebody may have survived uh, a terrorist attack or some kind of a civil war. And then uh, their comparison for not going out outside because of the lockdown would be very, very different than, let's say, probably you and my comparison where it is about shortages of uh, uh, staple products in supermarkets, which reminds me of the, you know, bands of the Soviet Union and that type of period. It's like, oh, it's actually not as bad as back then. Uh, but like that helps you to yeah. cope with course. But everybody has very, very different experiences about it. So how can people figure out what's the best way for them to approach? To What is the best fit in this current situation? Yeah, that's such a great question. And you're right. It's all. It's really all about reference point. It's all about comparison. 
so that's really what gratitude does, right? So you, you're, because when you're grateful, you're comparing, you have some kind of implicit comparison point, right? So I'm grateful that right. this isn't as bad as when I was growing up in the Soviet Union or, you know, our grandparents were called to war, right? And we're called to right, sit right. on our couch, right? That's one of those memes <laughs> yeah, on Facebook. Um, yeah. And so we can, but we can deliberately invoke these kinds of different reference points, Um so we can say, wow, I'm so, I'm so grateful that I have a job, but my, my neighbor doesn't. Or, you know, we have the technology, you know, we really are all facile with technology and we're able to kind of um, very quickly to reconnect with friends and family and our kids are able to sort of still take classes online. Right. Um, yeah, so we can, I guess my point is that we can make those comparisons deliberately and intentionally rather than kind of passively. Mm-hmm. And we, when we find ourselves sort of feeling sorry for ourselves, we can kind of deliberately invoke, well, you know, things could be worse. Now, I don't want to rely on that strategy all the time mm-hmm. because, I don't know, it just feels like I mean, I'd rather focus on action and kind of doing something to mm-hmm. make things even better. Mm-hmm. So not just like, oh, sitting around thinking, well, things could be worse, but, you know, maybe actually taking steps to make things better by sort of reconnecting right. or helping others. Uh, yeah, you but, bring up right away this topic of sort of like more optimistic attitude towards the whole crisis that we're in. And there's, of course, a lot of work on the role of optimism in happiness. So how do you suggest people might nurture this type of optimistic attitude in mm-hmm. the case of such an uncertainty, and we don't even know how long, for instance, the pandemic will last or the economic aftermath of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think optimism is one of the most difficult strategies, right? Because it's it's all kind of in your head, right? And yeah. You have to sort of control what you're thinking about. And, you know, and we already mentioned at the beginning of this, of this podcast that, that there are certainly some positives too, sort of silver linings. I mean, I hate to talk about yeah. that when people are dying. Um, I was talking to my my one of my kids, my college age daughter, about how I was sort of thinking about like how many diseases are actually are going to sort of improve in terms of outcomes, right? Like there are going to be fewer infectious diseases, and then there could be fewer workplace accidents, fewer car accidents, mm-hmm. pollution related yeah. yeah. uh, diseases. And she was like, "Mom, this is offensive." You know, like she mm. she found that it was offensive for mm. me to say this, as though I'm like, "Oh yes, but there's a silver lining." Right, uh, right. And she's like, "People are," she's like, "People are dying, people are suffering, so we have to kind of have a balance." But Sure. But I don't think there's anything wrong with focusing on some of the positives that now we have better pollution outcomes. That like, and I was just reading about, you know, animals roaming, you know, in mm. the national parks in the United States and Canada because now there are no people there, and and how nice it is for like the the wildlife. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we can still focus on positives, but at the same mm. time, working to create change and to improve the lives of people who are who are, who don't have positives. Right. Okay, so one more question about the uh, science of happiness and the pandemic. Do you think experts can learn something new about the science of happiness from the current events? And if so, what could be such a new insight? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I want to start by saying there was this great New York Times article that said it's Mm -hmm. unprecedented the degree to which scientists have now turned their attention to the pandemic. Uh, that always happens, but this has happened even more in part because a lot of research is sort of at a halt. So, so we've we had to stop a, but a lot of our research, but now we can kind of study the pandemic, no matter what field we're in, whether we're you know virologists or uh, economists or psychologists. Um, but I've been asking mm-hmm. myself this question, like, so the re- if I'm doing research right now uh, on happiness and how people can say feel more connected or, or happy, is it really just? Um, 
the same thing as I always do, but now it's about sort of happiness in trying times, or is there something really unique? And certainly the extent mm. to which we're social distancing and the extent to which we're relying on digital as opposed to face-to-face connection, like that really right. is very unique. And it's going to, at least at least for my lab, it's gonna, it's really going to sort of illuminate mm. for us, you know, how, you know, the difference between face to what is so special about face-to-face connection? Is it really special? And how we can connect and satisfy our need to belong and our need to be happy sort of in, in these trying circumstances. So I do think we have a lot to learn during this um, this very unique period in history. Yeah, because you could never run an experiment where you could persuade everyone to stay at home. You know, it's, <laughs> from that perspective, it's um, there must be some scientific opportunities. It, uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it, yeah, the greatest, you know, social experiment in, in my lifetime mm. and in our lifetimes. And so, yeah, we, it's, it's just, it, it's exciting well, again, this is kind of a silver lining. It's exciting sure. to take advantage of that. Um, of this and scary experiment. at the same time, yes. Yeah, very scary. All right. Well, Sonia, I just wanted to say thank you very much. We were really keen to speak to you. We've been keen to speak to you for a long time, but it seemed really worth trying to um, move heaven and earth to make this happen during these trying circumstances because so, so much of this stuff is really practical and, and applicable right now and can be of a- actual practical help in this difficult time. And thank you to you personally as well because scientists are human beings too and they also have all these stresses and strains. So I really appreciate you making the time um, in the midst of the craziness that must be the home life right now. Thank you so much. It really was lovely to, to talk to both of you and um yeah, I, I love I love the questions that you're asking. That are they're much uh, more nuanced and uh, and interesting to me than I think a lot of questions I usually get. So thank you very much. <laughs> Great, thanks a lot, Sonia. Thank you, Sonia. And now it's time for a summary. First, we spoke about basic definitions, and Sonia defined happiness as having two components: life satisfaction, we feel good about our lives and that we're progressing towards our goals, and positive emotions. We also frequently experience positive emotions. While they don't always go together, for example, in the case of Mother Teresa, they typically do. We then spoke about happiness in the context of the current pandemic. Hints from early research suggest that happiness levels haven't taken as much of a hit as perhaps expected as a result of the lockdown. Happiness is tightly coupled to connection with others. And while the lockdown is preventing many traditional forms of connection, people are harnessing digital tools to find many new ways to connect. We then spoke about whether happiness research is even relevant in the current situation, perhaps a luxury that we can no longer afford ourselves. In fact, many important outcomes, such as immunity strength, resilience to stress, and even helping others, are related to happiness, suggesting that taking time to boost happiness levels is not a luxury, but perhaps even more critical during a crisis than in normal times. We also spoke about Sonia's work on happiness interventions. In particular, we discussed the importance of fit. Rather than one size fits all, it's important to find an intervention that fits with your personality, your goals, and even your culture. Gratitude, for example, is an especially complex state which, while effective for many people, is also associated with feelings of indebtedness, which can be problematic in some cultures, such as South Korea, and also for people suffering from depression. Some of Sonia's current work is finding In a phenomenon also observed post 9-11, participants report feeling more grateful now than prior to the start of the pandemic. Finally, we spoke about moving towards an optimistic mindset by focusing on some of the positive aspects of the current situation, 
while at the same time taking action to create change in the lives of the many people who are suffering now as a result of the pandemic. That's it for this episode. Until next time on the On Wisdom Podcast. Thank you.